considering Charlotte is a series that's aimed at helping to educate the clergy and especially the laity and the upcoming uh, general conference proceedings, there are a lot of different things to keep in mind, and unfortunately, a lot of times people don't do the research until the last minute, and that means not a lot of good work can be done. So this crew has faithfully come together week to week to try to equip the saints for ministry as they come together in this conciliar government known as the General Conference. Uh, And so there's a lot going on, and there's more than we can possibly do, but we're going to do our level best. If, If this is your first episode with us, then um, I'm just the the host and moderator. I'm not an expert on these things. I'm not even a United Methodist at this point, but all four of, of the people here, as well as Odell Horn, who regularly joins us, are actively involved in the United Methodist Church, have served in various capacities. They know what they're talking about. They're experts in their own right, and so I'm really happy just to serve as a, a platform for elevating their voices to help you, uh, laity, hopefully, and clergy, to navigate these issues well. This particular episode is dealing with disaffiliation. Disaffiliation is the term for uh, local churches or even annual conferences choosing to leave the denomination of the United Methodist Church. There have been a lot of developments in this uh, over the last few years. Um, We'll get the historical uh, overview from Amy here in a little bit, but uh, if I were to summarize where this is, this all has to do with the trust clause and how the denomination can serve as a trustee over every local church and the implications that has when a local church wants out. And so when you're trying to look at leading a cohesive entity, a covenant body as the United Methodist Church, then disaffiliation is a threat to that. So uh, there have been, uh, as I said, a lot of developments to this over the last few years, especially as uh, there's been all this fallout from General Conference 2019, and we can't recapitulate all of that, but I think Joe DiPaolo could do a really good job talking about the one exit provision that has been utilized, paragraph 2553. He's willing to give a a basic overview uh, with that, so uh, maybe it would be good just to start with that, get everybody on the same page with what has transpired so far, and then after uh, Joe's gotten to speak for a little bit, uh, we'll turn to Simon for the international implications with uh, disaffiliation. So, you ready, Joe? Sure. All right, go ahead, brother. So, I think it's important that we don't assume that everybody knows what we're talking about, so let's just start at the basics, which is um, what has made necessary all of the uh, all the stuff we've seen with regard to proposals for the discipline, costs, lawsuits, and everything else. And that is the trust clause, which you mentioned. And the trust clause is language that is written into the deeds of local United Methodist churches, which uh, indicate that every local church holds in trust for the larger movement, the larger denomination, all of its property, uh, whether physical or otherwise. Uh, I think technically the legal ownership is the local church, but as a practical matter, the trust clause means that it's essentially owned or at least the, the annual conference has final word, and so any any disposition of the property, major changes, sales, and so forth has to be approved. And of course, uh, there is a provision in the discipline that allows for so-called exigent, exigent exigent circumstances, which allows the conference to, on rare occasions, seize properties. So that's the reason why there had to be something written into the discipline to allow a relaxation of the trust clause on a temporary basis. And of course, all of the um, conflict that was leading up to the 2019 special session of General Conference um, was what provided the background for that. And again, to kind of recap stuff we've talked about before, in 2019, the special session was held. 
uh, and that was ostensibly to try to decisively determine the future course of the denomination. The various plans were offered. The one which won a majority of the vote was the traditional plan which said that the UMC would uh, continue to maintain historic standards on marriage and sexuality going forward. Uh, at that general conference where I was a delegate, the the recognition was was made that there would be folks who, for reasons of conscience, would not be able to accept that decision, and so uh, and so there were several proposals made to include um, a temporary clause to allow churches to leave with their property, and that is the so-called disaffiliation, paragraph twenty five fifty three, which we hear so much about. Um, the intent, as I recall at the time was basically a gracious one, not to compel anyone to remain in a movement that they could not do, uh, where they could not do so in good conscience. And of course the irony of it was that the thought at the time was that this was a provision being made to allow more progressive leaning congregations to leave as a matter of conscience because it seemed that the traditionalist majority um, had determined the future course of the denomination. Of course in the aftermath of uh, St. Louis in 2019, that general conference, it became clear that the progressive folks in the church would not leave, um, that conferences would not abide by it, uh, the decisions of general conference, and there was a perception on the part of many traditionalists that the prog more progressive leaning leadership would essentially force their agenda through despite the decision of general conference 2019, and so traditionalist congregations began to use paragraph 2553, as well as a few progressives as well. Um, and if you look at paragraph 2553, it says disaffiliation of a local church over issues related to human sexuality. And it said that for that particular narrow focus, churches could choose to leave. But it did, it did say this as well, um, and that is uh, not simply that you disagreed with the discipline, but also that, uh, quote, actions or inactions of its annual conference related to these issues would also be a basis for, co for congregations to choose to leave. And on that basis, traditionalist congregations were leaving because they felt conferences were not acting faithfully or not going to uphold uh, the decisions of the general conference. It allowed, so the disaffiliation clause allowed for a so-called limited right to leave for a limited time, and it had an expiration date of December 31st, 2023, which of course just passed about a month or so ago. Of course, no one imagined that there would not be another general conference between 2019 and now to address whether or not to revisit 2553, extend it, tweak it, change it, or something. Um, also in the meantime, as you recall, the protocol of reconciliation and grace through separation was released in January of 2020. That was a plan that was agreed to by people across the theological spectrum to amicably divide the church, which um, even with the first two postponements because of COVID, first to 2021 and then to 2022, people thought would still be considered and likely pass. And so for the first couple of years, you didn't see many churches at all use the disaffiliation clause because people thought it was going to be addressed at an annual, at a general conference prior to the expiration date. Um, however, when a third postponement was announced two years ago, the general conference would not convene until after the expiration date. That's when you saw a rush of churches to use paragraph 2553 uh, to leave the UMC, and the overwhelming majority of those have been of a more traditionalist theological bent, although, as I said, some progressive churches have also left. Um, and 
these are just some statistics. So these are drawn from United Methodist official sources and also, which would be United Methodist News Service and also the General Commission on Finance and Administration. And it might be surprising even if you've heard some of these numbers. So um, according to these sources, as of the end of this past year, 7,660 congregations have departed the UMC using paragraph 2553. That represents just over 25% of the 30,543 congregations that were reported in the U.S. in 2019. However, that does not take into account uh, additional churches that are no longer with us because they have closed or been abandoned. And I have a friend who did an, an analysis comparing GCFA figures and um, United Methodist News Source figures, and he concluded that another 2,000 churches have also closed in that same four-year period leaving us with a total of more than 9,600 churches gone in the U.S. in just the last four years, which represents nearly 32% of all the congregations reported in 2019, and that's just staggering. And, of course, that does not, um, does not cover additional losses, which I think are still unfolding. The, there are churches which took disaffiliation votes and fall, fell short, and then half the congregation left, and we don't know what the fallout of that is. There are people who are just leaving, and of course we're dealing with attrition, or an older denomination. Uh, my conference closed five churches last June and disaffiliated five churches last June, um, and I've heard since then of an, another three that have had their last service since that time, just in my conference. So I think that we're going to find the actual losses in U.S. membership to be far more than the 25% figure, just counting the numbers of churches. Um, and uh, there's also attendance data that I can share if people are interested. Now, one last point, I think this was alluded to, and I think Simon will address this. Um, it was decided by the Council of Bishops that 2553 does not apply to churches outside the U.S. Now, as a delegate who was there, I, that was news to me, <laughs> but um, that is what has been the policy now. So uh, those numbers only apply to U.S. churches because the, those outside have not had the opportunity to use 2553. Um, and uh, so what we see in some of the petitions, as I'm sure we'll get to, we get, see a number of petitions addressing whether or not to extend 2553, modify it, um, eliminate it, and so forth in the upcoming general conference uh, in um, April of this year. So that hopefully gives you a bit, bit of an overview and a broad background. Yeah, really good job, Joe. Uh, just a little bit more texture. I would add stuff that I think I would care about, well, and that I, I've reported on all the way through. There was already a disaffiliation provision in the Book of Discipline before paragraph 2553 was adopted, and it was paragraph 2548.2. It was quite broad, and um, rather than uh, – there, there was question about whether or not that could be utilized – and it was determined by the Judicial Council that uh, the, the creation of 2553 then nullified that previous provision. And so nobody has been able to uh, exit under that previous provision that had been used for other churches to disaffiliate. Right. When you refer to those churches that have been closed, those 2,000, some of those have been because uh, they were no longer viable and had to be closed. Right. But there have been annual conferences such as South Carolina and West Virginia ha that have refused to utilize paragraph 2553 and instead have utilized 2549 and simply closed churches down and sold right. them back uh, to the churches. So th those yeah. those figure in, in in that way. Mm -hmm. And then the rationale yeah, that Bishop Tom Bickerton provided 
as I understood it, for why it is that non-American churches could not utilize paragraph 2553 was that in the conference minutes, as it was adopted, it was resolved that um, there would be a year-long delay between Americans crafting the plan and then central conferences adopting it after General Conference 2020. But General Conference 2020 never happened. And so it was kind of a loophole type thing where the clear intent was just give a little bit more time to central conferences to enact it. But what it effectively did was made it so it couldn't possibly be enacted until the cutoff date. But the decision was made. It was not given to the Judicial Council for approval, and there didn't seem to be any recourse. Um, mm -hmm. Is there anything else from Lonnie or Amy on uh, anything Joe or I have said in, in talking about these history and details before we then turn to Simon for the international implications? Uh, yes, Jeffrey, Lonnie here. Uh, I think it's important to remember that the United Methodist Church and, and its predecessors have, have always had a process in place for uh, local churches to disaffiliate. That, that's not a new concept at all. And neither uh, this, the, the previous process you've referred to, which uh, 2548, whatever that was, whatever one, or 2553 have, have been the sole avenues for, for uh, doing that process. Always uh, the, the guardian uh, or enforcer, if you want to think of it that way, of the trust clause uh, has been the annual conference with respect to the local church. And so the, the, the annual conference has always had the power uh, and authority to, uh, to uh, dispense with the trust clause which, as, far, as far as its effect on the local church is concerned. And the, the process up to now, up to, up to this uh, process we're going through now anyway, uh, has been that a local church that wanted to leave and take its property with it simply negotiated with the annual conference authorities, the bishop and uh, the, the cabinet, uh, about what the terms would be for it to be able to leave. And, and uh, some of these churches that we're talking about who have recently disaffiliated have in fact used that process rather than 2553. Uh, uh, a couple that come to mind immediately are Granger in Indiana and uh, Mount Bethel in North Georgia. Uh, these churches did not use uh, 2553 or any other specific paragraph uh, in the discipline, but the whole concept of negotiating with the conference on what the terms would be. Another one, I just remember it, a Glide Memorial in California, same thing. That church left under this negotiated process. And so we've had that. And uh, uh, even with the expiration of 2553, that process is still available and could be used by churches that want to Yeah, you're reminding me as, as you're talking that for a time uh, it was treated as a serious option that annual conferences could disaffiliate entirely. Um, and it was only once the Judicial Council ruled on it, they said annual conferences do indeed have that right to disaffiliate in their entirety, but because a process, a formal process, had not yet been uh, designed, the, the point was moot, that they, they couldn't actually disaffiliate. And so I noticed there were a couple petitions that dealt with that in the ADCA for, for this April. Um, There's also, I think, I think there is a path, though, for central conferences to become autonomous that's still in the, in the discipline, which is a little different. And just, Alani, just to follow up on one comment that you made, you're right that there's always been ways for the conference to negotiate with local churches 
and that's happened here as well in, in, in years past. But I, the difference here is that this was framed as a right, as a limited right, whereas in the past it's been more of an appeal, I think, where you have, you know, the conference could say no, but this was actually said, no, you have a right to leave in the current context because of the division for a limited period. Language and with less financial consequences, mm -hmm. too, right. or negotiated financial consequences, I think, mm -hmm. is what the, the emphasis was on this one. Sure. And I'm glad you brought it to that. Although it's also important to remember. Go ahead, Sonny. It's also important to remember that uh, the, the paragraph 2553 has a really important provision that an annual conference can, in, can uh, supply additional terms and conditions on uh, disaffiliation. Uh, and uh, one of the points of contention over the use of 2553 has been this 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 very piece of it uh, that some annual conferences have been uh, really aggressive in applying additional terms. Yeah, Joe is from one of those where I think a 50% property value has been required on top of uh, several other. Uh, one of the things about 2553 when it was adopted was that the unfunded pension liabilities would have to be paid, and the people who crafted that had no idea the way that Westpath would end up calculating that would be prohibitively expensive for so many churches. And so a lot of churches, as they looked at paragraph 2553 exit procedures, simply said, there's no way we can afford this, so we're not going to look at the process. So there are just so many different factors involved in this particular thing that have been frustrating all the way along. And the reason we're talking about it now is uh, not, hey, everybody agrees that disaffiliation needs to happen and we're just gonna talk about the best path uh, forward. There are uh, very vocal people within the United Methodist Church, such as Mark Holland of Mainstream UMC, who've said disaffiliation needs to end. We need to be done with this. It's not good for the denomination. Everybody in is in for good. If they don't like it, they can vote with their feet and leave, but leave their assets with us. And so that's, that's one of the things before the general conference in a few months is, is there going to be a new provision for churches that are not happy to participate, or is the sentiment now going to be, heck, we just lost 32% of our churches. We can't lose anymore. The door is closed. Um, so with that in mind, um, let's turn to Simon at this point. And Simon, we'd like to hear your report on how disaffiliation has affected the churches outside of the U.S., and in particular, um, any that you know about in Zimbabwe or the, the larger African context. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Jeff. Uh, the, the issue of disaffiliations um, has been quite a, a, a problem in terms of its interpretation and understanding in central conferences, especially in Africa. Uh, to start with, uh, like, like uh, uh, Joe said, we, I, I was a delegate uh, when that piece of legislation was passed. It was never specified that it would apply, you know, in one geographical setup of the denomination and not in the other. Because its premise is uh, based on reasons of conscience on a certain matter, which we believe affects the whole denomination. Uh, then in, in Africa in particular, there was confusion. Because to start with, yes, we all moved in 2020, 2021 because of postponements. So no one ever really looked at 2553. But when the need was there to consider 2553, the first confusion was the interpretation because uh, uh, the bishops, I can actually cite a good example of the Philippines uh, Episcopal area, 
or areas, they, they particularly wrote to the Council of Bishops whether they could use 2553. And uh, the, the president wrote to them that, you know, they, 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 they decided as the council and agreed unanimously that 2553 was not to be used by the regions outside of America. Uh, how they go to that, I, I'm, I'm still to understand. But when the bishops in the Philippines then wrote to their congregations, they said that we can only use 2553 after General Conference 2024 because the interpretation was that Central Conferences could only use certain pieces after a year following adjournment of the General Conference session. Then we counted 12 months. So it's like their interpretation was we could only use 2553 like in 2025 because 2024 is actually a 2020 general conference. Then we said, no, but how could we use a, a, a piece of legislation that sunsets in 2020, 2023? That, that doesn't happen. So, so the interpretation was, no, 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 it's supposed to wait for translations to all other languages, blah, blah, blah. But if you go back to the piece of legislation, it's, it clearly states that it takes effect immediately after following adjournment of the 2019 General Conference. So, so it was supposed to take effect immediately. Of course, all other, uh, generally all other pieces would take effect uh, 12 months after following adjournment because of translations. But this language is there clear that, you know, it was supposed to be effective immediately. Nevertheless, after that, we then tried to ask again, you know, what's happening? Because we don't seem to understand that this is for Americans only. I personally raised those questions in the standing committee on Central Conference Matters and where I could. Because we wanted to understand why we would uh, kind of apply this to one region when, when the language is not there. And somehow we also felt that why did the Council of Bishops gave their interpretation instead of maybe the Judicial Council to, to give it a declaratory uh, uh, statement or decision. Because I think that was a technical issue that needed the Judicial Council to rule on. So we then got uh, that confusion and people were told you cannot use 2553, it's not for us. And uh, in other quarters, those who tried to advocate for it were labeled as, uh, you know, people who are trying to destroy the United Methodist Church. So it became something that was like a taboo, you wouldn't talk about it. Because we were labeled as people trying to destroy the church. Yet there is a provision in our own discipline that allows for that disaffiliation. So people stood there, they got confused, they are being told you can't use it. So we then look at it as a justice issue. As we go to 2024, which is 2020 postponed, we look at it as a fairness and a justice issue. We still, you cannot convince Africans that 2553 uh, could not have, it was not meant for them. Because the language is not there. So we, all we were saying is if there is one church that wanted to use it, allow them in all fairness and let them make the decision themselves. Those who want to stay will stay. Those who want to use it can use it. That was uh, uh, what, what we thought would happen, but it, it never happened. I know eventually Kenya, uh, they, they used it. They kind of uh, forcefully used it uh, at their annual conference. They said, no, no, no. We, we are going to use it because we don't see where it says we cannot. So the annual conference in Kenya, they argued and voted to leave. 
and uh, close to 70, between 50 and 70 churches uh, eventually left. Um, I think that was the only conference that tried to use 2553 here. But um, yeah, that gap remains. We, we are not convinced that was not meant for, for central conferences. We believed, we, we, we voted together to pass it so that whoever wants to use it within the denominations, the, the, the denomination are free to use it. And um, it was the fairest thing to do. Then those who want to stay would stay. And I think it would make it easier for the, for the United Methodist Church to then reset after allowing all those who really feel by conscience they cannot stay. So we, at the end of the day, we are now seeing people who are kind of locked inside. They really want to go, but they are locked inside. And I don't know how they can be vibrant when they are in a locked system that they don't want to stay in. It, it makes me feel that we just need to be conscious about allowing those who want to go to go so that those who want to stay will stay and we reset and then we are a happier church that way. But that, that would, uh, let me end there for now, Jeff. It's worth remembering that um, there are non-American churches outside of Africa as well, and the very first uh, group to leave the UMC abroad in the midst of all this was Bulgaria, Romania, I believe. And uh, there was indeed a provision for exit, the uh, affiliate autonomous uh, provision that we've already referred to. I'm forgetting the paragraph number. But they, they refused to, to even take their time. And when their bishop uh, refused to let them take the vote, they simply took over the floor of their, their annual conference and took the vote anyway and left. And of course, Daniel Topolsky was at the head of that effort, and he's now the, um, the head of the GMC's uh, annual conference there. You mentioned Kenya, Ethiopia, but it's also my understanding that several churches in the Democratic Republic of Congo have also just summarily left the UMC and started GMC churches there. This is stuff that people like David Livingston, who's a centrist, have looked at and said they don't need paragraph 2553. They can just leave if they want to. Uh, but then that puts African churches in the position of, of breaking covenant when they care very much about covenant. So what I've understood to be the issue is that they're incensed that there are disciplinary provisions that have been made for them, as you have just said, that could not be utilized for them for reasons that seem quite strange. Um, so, Simon, I, I think you did a really good job presenting the issues and the tensions there in your setting. Is there anything, Amy, Lonnie, Joe, uh, to, to speak to the international context before we get to uh, some of the petitions? Yeah, I just want to also remind us that um, the the Philippines also had a schism even before the 2019 General Conference. And so, you know, there were churches there that had left the United Methodist Church um, and started new Methodist um, churches way before any of this um, this matter even began to arise. So this is not new, even in the central conferences. And as you stated, there are ways for churches to leave. However, you know, I mean, 10, I think it's like been 10 or 12 years later, those churches are still dealing with um, legal issues um, in the property um, because, again, the trust clause. And so there's been um, major um, financial matters based upon all of the legal issues that they've had to dealt, deal with in the Philippines Central Conference as well. And I'm glad you said that because I'm not very familiar with that. I was aware that one bishop left, I thought it was after 2019, and tried to start his own denomination. No, um, this but this is a different thing that you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. and it was, it was a, 
it was a it was also in the under episcopal leadership where a bishop had left and um, a new Methodist church actually arose and there were many churches within um, the Philippine Central Conference that had divided and I know this because my family was involved with it where it split my family um, mm. very distinctly and so that was very much a a fact that this has been happening this isn't sort of new well and it's my understanding that there are nine or ten French churches I didn't even know there were United Methodist French churches but they're going through the process to become affiliated autonomous or they're leaving the UMC as well uh, and that's based on an article I read like a month ago so it's just a huge big picture and it's complicated as is it should be quite obvious now to anyone paying attention um, Amy, I didn't know that about your family in the Philippines. I sure am sorry. So, yeah, you're going to be able to speak to the the sadness and the uh, the of all this division here whenever it comes time. Um, Lonnie, anything you want to say before you get into uh, the petitions? Okay. Well, the way I would just present this is Lonnie believes in the legislative process. Good job. Oh, it looks like Simon's got something to say. So I'll go back to you, Simon, in just a second. Um well, no, let's hear what Simon says, and then I'll present Lonnie as I understand you. So, Simon, what, what did you want to add? Okay, I just wanted to add that, uh, yes, we are cognizant of the fact that uh, the Book of Discipline has a provision for central conferences, which is the autonomous route. That must be uh, 572, I can't remember the paragraph. But it leads you to become an autonomy, Right. And, but when you look at the many of the Africans, they are not keen to become an autonomous church because it's part of uh, their DNA to be a connected church. So they wanted a route that would lead them to be connected in another denomination, for example. Because no one was keen. So far in Africa, uh, no one was keen to, to become an autonomy. That's why they were keen on the 2553 or, or something that leads them to maybe another connected denomination. And, and, and on top of that, the autonomy process is a very cumbersome process. It, it takes a, a long time. You have to go through your annual conference first. You have that passed by a certain threshold. Then you have to go to the central conference. You have a certain supermajority vote that is also supposed to be ratified by the, all the annual conferences of that uh, central conference before it eventually goes to the general conference for further ratification. So it takes maybe two quadrennia or, or, or something like that. Because you remember, our central conferences sit after general conference. So when you sit after general conference, you have to then wait for another four years to eventually get to your final destination. So, so I, I don't think uh, many Africans had appetite for, for that provision. That's why they were keen for the protocol for separation or probably 2553, but something that would leave them with something that is in their DNA, which is the, the, the connection, the connectionalism, is something that you can't take away from them. So, so you need to take note of that. Uh, thank you very much. Yeah, that was really useful. Thank you, Simon, because I think a lot of people would have listened to me and said, why don't the central conferences just use this other provision? And there are some real reasons as to why that would not at all be practical or even feasible for uh, a lot of uh, non-American. So thank you so much. Um, so with Lonnie, and now we're going to be looking at the petitions in the ADCA. You can download the ADCA for free at resourceumc.org. Um, I'm going to do my best to any specific provisions uh, listed. I'm going to do my best to put it on the screen for viewers, but I, I urge you to go and download it for yourself as well. 
Um, Lonnie believes in the legislative process, and he's engaged in it in earnest. There, you're going to see his name all over the ADCA. Uh, he, he's presented uh, more than a dozen petitions that I could count, but he's also helped a lot of other people craft their own petitions uh, for, for no fees or charge whatsoever. He just wants his denomination to be a reflection of the people uh, themselves and not just those with means and know-how. So he's really put himself out there to to do this, and um, he does this as a person who has his own theological convictions around coercive power, but also his own convictions, as we've talked about in previous episodes, about human sexuality and uh, innovations that need to be made there. But he he's of the mind that it needs to be done right. So, Lonnie, what I was hoping you could speak to on the front end and then go whatever direction you want, but Joe made uh, uh, allusion to it, and then Simon again just now, uh, Ken Feinberg got involved because uh, an African bishop who has since passed invited him to bring all these coalition leaders together to craft a, what has been commonly called the protocol, but it was to be an amicable separation provision. It's a lengthy piece of legislation that is in the ADCA, and it was signed on to by all the coalition leaders and bishops, but uh, since then there have been a lot of developments, and many of those who signed on initially have reneged on their commitment to it, and now it's being considered dead on, dead in the water. I'm, uh, I'm actually, I've reached out to Ken Feinberg, and he's agreed to an interview, so hopefully I'm going to be speaking to him soon about how he understands all this to take place. But from the inside, Lonnie, how do you uh, see the, the, the protocol? Do you agree it's dead in the water and should be, or how do you see that? And then could you lead into uh, the remainder of uh, petitions as you've understood them and the different uh, ways going forward that the, the conference could entertain? Thanks, uh, Jeffrey. I, I believe that, in fact, the, the protocol as it was, uh, was presented and uh, submitted as legislation by a couple of conferences, Michigan, uh, the first one, as far as I can remember, uh, that submitted the protocol legislation that was prepared by that group uh, uh, to the General Conference uh, for action. Uh, but uh, it probably is... Uh, as it said, dead on arrival. Uh, but I lament that. I, I think that uh, there was a great deal of value in the protocol. In fact, Amy and I uh, were in a group that cooperated to to present a different form of the protocol. You know, the debate quickly devolved into whether one would, should support the protocol or the Christmas covenant. And Amy's and my idea was that, well, why should it be either or? And so, in fact, we uh, participated in a group that submitted a single piece of legislation that came to be called the Alaska Omnibus Proposal uh, that combined the two uh, with, uh, we removed some of the uh, constitutional requirements from the Christmas Covenant to make that, that composite. Uh, so it was a protocol with a modified Christmas Covenant and then we, we got uh, the uh, Westpath group involved with us. And so it, it combined those three, that there were several Westpath provisions that were supplied by them uh, to make that proposal. Unfortunately, uh, the time and circumstance is what has, has overcome the protocol. With the departure of so many churches already, uh, maybe up to 32% now, uh, there was limited application it seemed uh, perhaps for the protocol as it was. But the idea that was central 
to what the protocol uh, team of 16 who negotiated that, uh, and uh, Feinberg especially was helpful in, in making this happen, was to, to put into legislative form the concept of amicable separation. Now, that's not a new concept. It wasn't new to them. Uh, you, in fact, you can look back to about General Conference 2004, uh, where that uh, really came to the fore as uh, something that the church had to take seriously. Should we uh, continue to rely on property and purse to be a, a binding agent for the church, a church, in fact, which probably ought to consider itself bound by a common heritage, common doctrine, and a common covenant. Should, should we rely on something like property and purse to be our binding agent? Of course, that concept itself goes back a long way too. Uh, John Wesley being the control freak that he was, uh, was very intent on keeping churches under his own personal control. And he did that as long as he lived. And then um, in America, uh, Francis Asbury carried on that same kind of uh, authoritative uh, control of the church. Uh, and so to them and to, to those who followed in that, that notion, it was only fitting that the church should be bound by these two powerful, coercive agents of property and purse. Uh, I believe that concept is, is obsolete, and that was what value the protocol brought to the fore and presented to us. Uh, I think we can look at the petitions that are now before us that, uh, that carry on uh, the, the, the idea that we established in 2019 of an alternative way to look at uh, the possibility of disaffiliation to be uh, an enfleshment of the idea of amicable separation. Uh, we've got before us now something like about almost 50. I, my count is actually 47, but I suspect I've missed a few in my compilation of the petitions that deal with disaffiliation or in some cases reaffiliation. Uh, and I, th I think we can put them in categories where there's a batch of petitions uh, that all deal with paragraph 2553 that in one way or another propose to carry on and reinstate 2553, which expired, as Joe pointed out, at the, the end of December 2023. And they would, they would essentially just say, well, let's just reinstitute that, uh, that paragraph and then make some tweaks. Some, uh, in fact, propose in increasing the penalty for withdrawal and some propose decreasing the penalty for withdrawal. There are other, there's another batch of petitions that in one form or another say uh, 2553 has expired, it needs to stay expired, we don't need to reinstitute this, and amicable separation is not something we're for, we like the trust clause and its power, 
to keep us together. Uh, and uh, uh, then we got uh, the, a couple of proposals, three I think actually, uh, that would uh, uh, call for the protocol to go forward. Uh, and uh, I, I think it's, it's fair to say, well, it's, anything's fair in this kind of war, but uh, uh, the, uh, the petitions that, that I think uh, ought to draw the most attention here are, are a couple that I submitted, <laughs> for one thing, uh, and then uh, extremely parallel petitions that came from, uh, uh, from Liberia, from a couple of individuals in Liberia, actually, from Jerry Kula and from Julius Nelson. Uh, one petition uh, calls for a, uh, a reinstituting with significant changes of paragraph 2553, which would empower local churches uh, to continue to be uh, able to, to disaffiliate. And another petition uh, that would call for uh, putting into the discipline provisions for the exercise of an annual conference's constitutional right to disaffiliate. Uh, the, the, the Judicial Council ruling on this matter of annual conferences is worth a little bit of exploration here because it was confusing. Uh, and I kind of think actually they were confused when they were doing this. Uh, what the Judicial Council actually said was uh, that an annual conference has a right to vote to withdraw from the United Methodist Church. And then in a subsequent uh, decision in an attempt to clarify what it meant there, which I don't think added any clarity, just muddied the water some more, was it said that uh, an annual conference could not exercise this right until the general conference had put in place a process by which it could do this, exercise this right. And uh, it, it's still astounding to me that the Judicial Council could say, in effect, that an annual conference has a right to vote to do something, but that something wasn't something that an annual conference could actually do. It could vote to do that, but it couldn't do it. Uh, that's bizarre, in my judgment, and, and so I'm, I'm still not uh, at all clear on how that makes any sense. But uh, that's, that's where we are. Uh, the Judicial Council says an annual conference has authority or has the right to vote to withdraw, but it can't withdraw or it can't even exercise this right to vote to withdraw. And, and mind you, it bases this in the constitutional reserved powers of uh, an annual conference. Uh, but it can't do this until the general conference puts in place a process. So the petitions that uh, deal with this annual conference withdrawal, disaffiliation, are just a matter of putting in place a process that the Judicial Council already says uh, uh, can be done by the general conference to empower an annual conference to exercise a right it possesses by way of constitutional power uh, 
to withdraw. So uh, uh, th that's kind of where we are with these petitions. Uh, and like I say, almost 50 of them, probably 50 if you count the ones I missed, uh, that deal with this in one way or another on one side. And to be issue. clear, Lonnie, you've submitted how many petitions dealing with this directly? Uh, I, I submitted two, one to uh, empower a local churches, uh, and, and mind you, I think 2553 was always the wrong place in the discipline to put this with respect to local churches. So not only am I pro proposing to uh, carry on with the idea of, of local church authority to disaffiliate uh, on, a, on a theological basis of uh, amicable separation, uh, but I've proposed that we put it over where it belongs in the section of the discipline that deals with local churches. Yeah, the section in which... And I've also submitted a petition to uh, authorize annual conferences to exercise their constitutional right to vote to withdraw. Uh, but then I've also got uh, another petition that I think is even more fundamental and but has almost no chance to pass, but it's an idea that needs to be... Uh, uh, kept in, in mind, and that is, I believe that the trust clause is a mistake going all the way back to John Wesley, and we ought to do away with it, and I've got a petition in to do that, uh, and I hope at least get some, uh, some yeah, conversation. Lonnie, if you get your way, then the United Methodist Church is going to have no choice but to just be a coalition of the willing. That just sounds terrible. I don't know why you would do that to them, so... <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah. for for uh, it was a lot for me to take in. Uh, you you made clear that there were two Africans that had also submitted uh, petitions dealing with this. Jerry Kula and Nelson. Uh, I'm forgetting the other name. How would you characterize? Judas, how would you characterize Judas, those petitions? Uh, they've done a really good job, in my judgment. There, uh, I think my petitions are better, but. Uh, that's just personal preference. I would not be at all heartbroken if uh, Jerry's and Julius's uh, petitions were passed. I, I should say I've got a history here. I've worked with both those gentlemen in legislation at General Conference before. We've done a lot of negotiating together. And, come and then of the, work, the almost 40 that are submitted, how many of those uh, are in favor of either just discontinuing disaffiliation altogether or making the... Um, the mandatory payment out much higher. About half. It's it, just like the the church is on this issue. We're just uh, almost split down the middle, and these petitions are also uh, those that uh, uh, favor uh, either doing away with the provision altogether or making it so onerous as it is effectively uh, uh, not available. Uh, and then the other other half uh, advocating. Uh, continued or increased amicability in the process. So something I failed to mention about Lonnie uh, as I was introducing him was another free resource he's uh, offered to the churches. He's actually painstakingly created an, a Microsoft Excel document, a spreadsheet that has noted all of the petitions, their titles, and you have several ways of navigating it. Uh, he's calling it a matrix. And um, we've got that on um, Google Drive, and I'm going to put a link in the show notes for those of you who would like to, to use it and navigate these things on your own. As I said, you can get the actual ADCA online for free, but if you want this matrix for navigating the ADCA, 
um, then then we'll offer that for free as well. So thank you, Lonnie, for for all that analysis and all the matrix and, and all that you've done there. Uh, reactions from the the rest of the three of you. Uh, Lonnie obviously did a fantastic job giving the broad scope. Does anybody want to highlight any particular petitions or uh, add your own texture to what Lonnie has said? Sure. Uh, I would just add that the the number of petitions that deal with this is is quite something, and it shows the complexity of uh, uh, that this whole process involves. So there are petitions that ask that try to address what do you do with the general agencies? So can general agencies still relate to some of these new bodies or churches that have disaffiliated, like Westpath, General Commission on Finance Administration? There's a petition number 20255 uh, that says that they can serve, the agencies can serve non-United Methodist churches on a, pay, on a fee for uh, service basis. Uh, one of them addresses whether or not former United Methodists who have disaffiliated can even serve on the boards. And you know, there's uh, issues of how do you maintain historical records for churches that have left, addressing pension obligations in ways that are, in ways that are fair and equitable. And uh, so, so there's a lot of complexity that is involved in this whole process of disaffiliation. And there are a number of, of petitions that try to address some of those concerns as well. I appreciate that, uh, Joe. As I, I should point out, in fact, uh, my friend Emily Allen uh, has put in three petitions that deal exactly with this general agency relationship uh, matter. And I think those are extremely meritorious and uh, whatever else we do, we ought to pass those three uh, that allow general agencies to continue to relate to Methodists uh, who have uh, withdrawn this. Well, and again, that's nothing new in the sense that um, we already have these relationships with, you know, um, Methodist and Wesleyan um, partners throughout the um, throughout the world. It's just the complexity of those relationships, I think, will be changed and shifted. And as you were saying, Joe, um, the finance piece of that, too, it's, you know, how how far and wide will an agency's um, reach be? when the resources are diminishing as well. And so that, I think, is a shifting reality um, with these disaffiliations. Um, Jeffrey, can I just jump in and sort of add, um, I mean, I think Lonnie did a great job of sort of saying what's in front of us. And um, and as, as he noted, you know, we were actively engaged with ways in which to sort of look at the protocol and the complexities of the Christmas conference and find that bridge to help move us forward in a different direction. I think um, the, the challenge that we continue to face with the disaffiliations are our global relationships. And I think Simon did a wonderful job of saying, hey, this is what has been interpreted. But again, there are different avenues in which um, churches have continued to sort of split and then come together, split and to come together. So, you know, Ivory Coast just joined the United Methodist Church not too long ago, right, within this last 20 years. And, um, and that was a, a big, huge boon in um, Methodism. Um, and at the same time, here we are again at this sort of crossroads. And I think what you said, Lonnie, really sort of strikes at the matter. Um, what is it that keeps us together? Is it our heritage? Is it our doctrine? You know, is it our theology? And why is it that we are sort of saying um, in the minutia of 
2553 and these disaffiliation pieces that really are at the heart of it where we're talking about um, properties and purses, right? Like this is the most important conversation that we need to have, you know, as a body of United Methodists, it's properties and purses. And I've argued about this for so long to say, really, what is it? Um, is it more about, you know, power or is it about connection? And I, I also appreciate the fact that, you know, um, one of the reasons some of our, you know, United Methodist brothers and sisters from outside of the U.S. joined or chose to stay part of the United Methodist Church versus going with um, other autonomous Methodist churches is because of the connection, because we are stronger with this connection and we are stronger um, also on an influential stage of in their countries um, around being able to say, hey, we're connected to a larger entity. But I do think one of the key elements of um, even any of this disaffiliation is what we do with our relationships regionally, right? Like regionalization at the heart of it is what will affect um, how we even deal with these disaffiliations, because there's a lot of chatter out there that is talking about well, um, you know, what, what kind of relationship are we going to be in with our brothers and sisters outside the outside of the U.S.? And how will that affect um, the way we do polity together, right? Like the way we do general conference. And it will be affected in these, um, you know, um, there's, there's going to be challenges if we don't um, address that part as well in conversation with our disaffiliations. Yeah, the the connection piece. This one, but <laughs> the connection piece is so important, and it's something that now the GMC is having to navigate because a lot of people. I didn't want to believe it was true. A lot of churches disaffiliated, and we wanted to imagine that this this ethos of connectionalism would would continue on the other side. But it turns out a lot of churches really just wanted to go independent and have control of their own stuff which is fundamentally unmethodist. Uh, but then um, for others like me, um, and I would point viewers, and then any of you who haven't seen it, I, I got to interview Maria Dixon Hall, who's a liberal centrist from uh, Texas yesterday. Uh, we, we published it and um, kind of sussed out, you know, um, for people like me who do love connection, why was it that the UMC just became untenable? And in light of the fact that for people like me, it did become untenable, that's where this conversation comes in, is do we want to restrict uh, people's ability to leave with their assets in tow, or does, there, does this need to be a coalition of the willing, knowing that that comes at a much greater cost? So, um, uh, Amy, I did want to come back to you here in a minute, but I did notice, Simon, that you unmuted yourself a couple minutes ago, and I was thinking that you had something to say before we turned to Amy. Okay. Okay. Well, so, uh, Amy, I, I knew that you, well, you've already told us you, you have a per unique perspective. Your family has, has uh, experienced a lot of this turmoil uh, being spread across the U.S. and the Philippines. But professionally also, you have spent decades of your life trying to build up the connection of the United Methodist Church. Uh, it's been a professional and personal and spiritual thing for you 
to um, to build up a connection worth having, and 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 uh, I think everybody knows that and sees that. So perhaps uh, you've already spoken to some of the practical stuff, and maybe there's stuff left to be said. But I know that we should defer to you for just kind of the the bird's eye view of the sadness of this moment, maybe the hope of this moment. There's always you know a a, a ray of sunshine coming through the clouds somewhere. So what what do you think is important for? Uh, delegates who are going to uh, general conference this April to keep in mind as they're looking through the different petitions and deciding how they're going to vote? I think, um, Jeffrey, that you um, you noted it, and it is about connectionalism, right? Like, it's how are we going to be in relationship with one another, even if we are not in sort of a politically um, claimed relationship? You know, what is it going to look like for us to lean into that conversation and unite around matters that the world needs us to unite on, that the world needs the body of Christ to unite around. You know, I think that is um, some of the um, hopefulness. Um, as many of you know, I'm working with an ecumenical entity right now, and I think there's great gifts in remembering our ecumenism in, um, and how, you know, that God still reaches in us and through us and connects us in spite of us, <laughs> right? In spite of all of our divisions and our differences. Um, I think one of the greatest gifts that the United Methodist Church has given me personally is this gift of relationships all over the world. You know, I have so many wonderful connections of people that I've met through these relationships. And, um, and I think what really just hurts my heart, and I know hurts the hearts and souls of like, our colleagues, even with the North Georgia Annual Conference that lost 261 churches in the last vote in November, our our greatest pain is that we're not going to have that annual gathering with our colleagues where we're going to be able to see one another and check in on each other no matter what you know, um, theological bend we have. It's the relationship and the love for one another that we have that we feel like will be lost. Um, in that regular, you know, frequent opportunity to come together. I think it's just going to be harder in the sense that we have to be more intentional about reaching across those um, differences and getting together with folks that aren't just in our same um, spheres, right, in our same silos. Because we are, um, I think one of my friends, I'm going to say, um, give her credit for this, April Bliant, she's also, um, you know, moved in a different direction with the Methodist Church. But she said, as we were riding horses one um, afternoon, she said, you know, here's what I think about denominations. I think that um, every denomination has an understanding of God that they know really, really well. You know, that they have this piece of God that they know inside and out. But no denomination or no group of religions actually has the full picture of God. And only together, when we lean across and we learn from another, one another, will we even get a greater glimpse of the fullness of God. And I think that sort of gives me hope when we get past all of this. When will we be able to see the gifts that our colleagues have of that picture of God that maybe we haven't seen yet? Um, and I think that in essence, is um, is what we need to keep in mind, that we shouldn't demonize one another just because we're looking for these avenues to be able to fully express ourselves. But what does it really look like to recognize that 
the spirit is within our brothers and sisters, no matter who they are, where they are from, or where they're at. So that's the hopeful um, piece of me that I continue to hold on to do, that God will continue to walk with us through this time and place as well. Well, we've tried to keep these things to an hour, and we're right up at that, but I, I want to defer to the rest of you. Are there any other closing meditations that you think, you know, we, we probably can and will come back around to disaffiliation petitions as conference. We, we've got open episodes, but is there anything that you think in this that we really need to have for the sake of those who spent their time with us? Uh, uh, from me, Jeff, I, I think uh, as delegates go to general conference uh, in, a, in about 10 weeks' time, we have a great opportunity uh, to demonstrate that we can resolve these things amicably in a dignified manner and create a new form of unity. It doesn't mean that if you are in different denominations, we are not, we are not united. We are. If we do that peacefully with love and allow each person to be in the place where they best feel like God is calling them to serve in, I think that's the place at which we are. Let's go there as delegates, not in a combative mood, but in a mood of, uh, uh, you know, uh, amicable uh, resolve of what is uh, uh, before us. This is the only remaining opportunity that is before us. And, um, yeah, we really need to, especially from the African point of view, that's we, a good we, we really have Simon, a lot. Thank you that so much, we, brother. Um, we could, Joe, you had something. Yeah, I would thank just, you. Um, echo something that Amy said is that there have been many splits and reunions over the last several hundred years within the Methodist family of churches and there have been many departures that have that have been amicable because we we you know there are now 75 or 80 Methodist denominations around the world that all relate to each other in the World Methodist Council many of which were part of the UMC or one of its predecessor bodies uh, in, you know the Methodist Church of Korea for example is uh, as its own Book of Discipline and General Conference, Methodist Church of the Caribbean. And I think what we're also going to see in coming years are realignments and reconnections among a number of these bodies. Um, and I think that'll also unfold uh, as things go forward, which makes me hopeful as well. That's a good word. Uh, I, I think this has been time very well spent uh, for all of us, and so I just want to thank you, uh, Lonnie, Joe, Amy, Simon. Uh, it's really been a blessing to spend this time with you, and I hope all the viewers feel the same. If, uh, if you agree that this has been helpful analysis, then I just want to continue to encourage you viewers to share this with other people in the United Methodist Fold who are concerned about these things, in particular delegates to General Conference. It's so important that people take the time and energy to reflect on these things, especially as it has to do with the nature of your connection and how it is that you want to uh, incentivize or compel continued connection in, in the future. So uh, stay with us. There are going to be several more episodes of uh, Considering Charlotte. Next week, I believe we, we're starting to cover regionalization, and we're going to spend a couple of weeks on that unless we decide to do something else. So uh, stick with us. Make sure to subscribe to Plain Spoken. And then if you have any thoughts about how it is that we can do these segments better for the good of the United Methodist Church, make sure to email us at plainspokenpod at gmail.com. So thank you for spending time with us. We ask God's blessing upon you and the United Methodist Church, and we'll look forward to seeing you next week.